Welcome to the last Major Mondays webinar of the year. We're going to be talking about changes in the law affecting subrogation. So the biggest one I wanted to talk about, because it really impacts employers and carriers and reimbursement rights, is the amendment to Section 11 and the introduction of Section 118A of the Workers' Comp Law. So technically not this year, uh, but it did just take effect December 30th, 2022, so we're still grappling with the implications of it. But basically, um, this statute, you'll find the language both in um, the newly added uh, subsection 2 to Section 11 and the newly added Section 118A. Uh, a determination by the board shall not be given collateral estoppel effect in any other action or proceeding arising out of the same occurrence except for employer-employee relationship. In other words, you can't borrow a board determination to prove something in a civil case uh, unless that is just, you know, the board finds that so-and-so is the proper employer for this matter. Um, so this hinders both global defense efforts and possibly our recovery efforts. What do I mean by global defense efforts? Well, it used to be in, if you were, say, you know, complex claims, you know, labor law, the claimant's suing, but you're also defending the employer civilly in that action, you know, the CGL co coverage and the EL coverage. Uh, say, for instance, that there was a prior accident uh, and the board finds that, 90% of the claimant's um, damages or claimant's current medical treatment are attributable to the prior accident. Uh, or say, for instance, they determine that, you know, uh, the right ankle fracture uh, is not causally related to this accident. And that's a means of, you know, getting out of uh, under a serious injury claim for a motor vehicle accident. You know, the claimant needs to prove a serious injury, which includes a fracture. And let's say the rest is all soft tissue injuries. You could borrow these board findings uh, as to different issues like medical treatment, apportionment, damages, all of that other stuff uh, to prove or set up defenses in the civil action. So this, you know, if you're defending the employer globally, both across the workers' comp case and, you know, like in a hypothetical labor law case where they got sucked into the third party action, um, this is going to hinder the defense efforts. It used to be workers' comp and CGL counsel could confer and get on the same page and everyone's sharing stuff and we all have an idea of how we're going to proceed and the arguments we're going to make. Now, basically, the only thing that matters that the board says in the civil action is employer-employee relationship. So we can't borrow um, board findings to prove damages. We can't argue that fraud is already established. That is also something that we would use in civil actions. Say, for instance, the board rescinds $50,000 of temporary disability you know, under Section 114A. Well, you know, there is no future, um, um, especially if the claim closes via Section 32 for the medical component, there are no future comp benefits against which we can assert uh, the overpayment of the 50K rescinded benefits. So what the heck do we do with it? Well, the answer used to be sue the claimant civilly. Um, we all know they're not going to be liquid enough to uh, produce $50,000 in response to the complaint, but it used to be as simple as just, filing it, and then an immediate SJ motion saying fraud has already been established, claimant should not be permitted to relitigate it here. And this looming threat of a civil judgment, you know, and then we're going to repossess their house and we're going to take their motorcycle and we're, we're going to garnish their wages and all that. It used to be the looming threat of this civil judgment could, you know, possibly force a Section 32 or heavily incentivize one. Or alternatively, uh, if we got to the point of a third-party settlement, you could actually claim you should be reimbursed dollar for dollar as to the indemnity component. Because again, 
if you had a civil judgment against the claimant, you know, that's basically a lien, right? So when they settle their third-party action, the way the law goes, if you perfected that judgment, they would have to reimburse you first anyway. So it would be, you know, if we had the civil judgment in hand based on fraud, we could say, all right, we'll get back all of our indemnity paid dollar for dollar, and then we'll get back about two-thirds of medical. Or, like I said, you could level, leverage a 32. No more. The fraud uh, findings from the board also do not count. Can't use to show no causal relationship of a prior injury. We talked about that. Uh, we can't use to rule out um, comparative negligence. So comparative negligence is a very, um, you know, a very common defense that's raised in civil cases. And, you know, workers' comp is a type of no-fault benefit, right? We're not really diving into um, employee negligence anyway. But where does this come up? You know, horseplay, um, you know, accidents arising from intoxication, anything that would make you question the applicability of workers' comp benefits and, you know, whether this person was in the course of their employment or the accident arose out of their employment. Again, you know, if we, if we prevailed on a defense of intoxication, great. That's something you can raise in the civil action. No more. So I won't belabor the point any further, but this one uh, kind of stings a bit. Um, this does not mean the entire workers' comp board e-case docket is now useless. This is only for board findings and decisions. So uh, sworn testimony can still be used to attack credibility in the civil action. You know, say we take the claimant's testimony on 114A, you know, that's sworn testimony. Um, medical and indemnity still serve as proofs of economic loss. Again, our baseline damages, if we're subrogating, is going to be the claimant's medical treatment and indemnity. So we can still say, look at these EOBs, look at these checks we sent, look at this um, C240 showing the wages, you know, uh, point out all the forms and all the lost time that prove our economic damages in making our subrogation claim. Uh, opinions as to permanent disability, still relevant, even if not binding. You know, we can say, hey, our IME finds, you know, X permanent disability to the lumbar spine, Claimant's, count, uh, claimant's treating physician finds Y, permanent disability to the lumbar spine, you know, and just leave it out there. That's a discovery response that says there are two opinions saying there's permanent disability here. Um, so concurrent employment can still show up in a deposition. You never know what the plaintiff will testify to civilly versus what they'll testify to in the workers' comp case. So this doesn't mean stop coordinating defense efforts. It doesn't mean that e-case and all of the board file documents are now useless to you. Uh, it just means that you can't take, you know, a PDNSL or an EC23 or an EC200X, any of those board decisions, and use a finding except for employer-employee relationship. So let's dive into the cases now. And um, big theme this year uh, across all of the various appellate division decisions is Section 29.6. Um, so Section 29.6 is basically an extension of Section 11 of the Workers' Comp Law. Section 11 is our exclusivity statute. You know, it says you can't sue your employer for a work-related injury except for intentional wrong. Section 29.6 extends that to coworkers, insurance carriers, you know, et cetera. Basically runs it up the chain. Um, so there are two decisions from the end of uh, December 2022, Bryant versus Gulnick and Wang versus Lynn. These both, like, snuck in right before we got to 2023. Both reinforce the power of workers' compensation exclusivity under 29.6. Bryant, in particular, I thought was pretty interesting because it reiterated that unless there is affirmative negligence of a vicariously liable party, a derivative action is going to be barred by Section 29.6 if the under underlying negligence is barred. So if, say, it's a claim of coworker negligence, 
And you're saying that the employer is vicariously liable because, you know, the coworker was their agent. Well, the law says that this is going to bar the claim against the employer derivatively as well under 29.6. So um, for more on this interesting topic, this isn't the first time we talked about it. Check out the uh, webinar we did on the uh, special employment from July 12th, 2022. We talked about this whole issue of comp exclusivity, general special employers, uh, lent employees, etc. Um also see uh, Carry versus uh, Toy Industry Association, TM. Uh, in that case, a union worker contracted out, uh, count, counted as a special employee. Uh, if the special employer controls and directs the manner, details, and ultimate result of the employee's work. We also have Rees versus Dubois. A public employee, employee, I thought this one was interesting, is a joint employee of both the county and the sheriff's office for 29-6. So the implication being that if they work in a political subdivision of the state or of the county, it's not just their particular subdivision, you know, fire department or police department. You know, if there is a county employee that is responsible for the accident, they would be protected as a coworker, even though they're completely separate departments. So I thought that one was pretty interesting. Let's just sneak in some other 29-6 decisions here before we move on. We had this uh, Tarasiuk versus Lavoritz case. Uh, acceptance of comp bars a suit against the employer, even for intentional wrong, but not necessarily against the coworker. Why? Because if the coworker committed an intentional wrong, uh, there, it's highly questionable whether the accident arose out of uh, or in the course of employment. Again, this is covered in the special webinar we did uh, from July 12th, 2022. That was an assault case, and in that case, we did still prevail on the general special employment defense. Uh, in the civil action, we had the whole case barred. Um, even though it was a Lent employee to a bakery, and then another bakery employee uh, is the one he assaulted. So it's it's an interesting one. Check it out if you haven't seen it already. We also had Black versus 465 Payne Avenue. I thought this one was pretty cool. If a defendant owner, in other words, a landowner, is going to prevail on 29.6, it has to establish that it functioned as an alter ego of the plaintiff's employer. This is a premises liability case, but basically – if you're um, the plaintiff's employer, but you also own the property uh, and the plaintiff is um, suing you and you're trying to get out under the 29-6 saying, well, hold on, I may own the property, but I'm, you know, just an alter, uh, you know, I'm, I'm also this guy's employer. You have to establish that you're an alter ego, like it, it, that you're not distinct legal entities in order to avail yourself of the 29-6 defense. There was a similar result in this uh, Alberico versus Riverside Unit C case, uh, which I do recommend checking out. That one's from October 17th, 2023. That's not what we're here for, right? Uh, Section 29.6 is in Section 29, but we're here for the Section 29 stuff. In other words, everything before 29.6. So D'Alessio versus York Risk Services Group. Um, This is from March 15th, 2023. So while a claimant has the option of getting written consent to settle under 29.5, and what's kind of neat about this is you're, we're going to go over some of the board trends this year, and you're going to see we're going to talk about the 29.5 thing again, but it's becoming more and more common. So while they have the option of getting written consent to settle under 29.5 or a compromise order from the civil court, there is no requirement to seek our consent first. They can do either or, just it's way easier to get our consent and way more cost effective. That's why 99% of them shake out that way. Um, when the latter is sought more than three months later, it's considered non-proton. So Section 29.5 has a whole list. It's literally laid out in the statute. Everything you need to get a compromise order without the carrier's consent. 
Here's a physician, physician's affidavit and, you know, a statement of the periods of lost time and the claimed injuries and an affidavit from plaintiff's counsel of, you know, no conflict and all this other stuff factored into Section 29.5 compromise orders. But if it's more than three months after the case is settled and you're looking for a 29.5 compromise order, then it's non-pro-tunk, uh, literally translated now for then. Um, we did a year-end review on uh, Christian Cisan's Third Friday's podcast uh, where we did dive into NPT orders quite a bit. So uh, yet another thing I'm recommending checking out if you're looking for some um, casual listening away from the family this holiday season, um, even though it's anything but casual. Anyway, so if it's an NPT uh, motion, sorry, I got a laugh from RIT guy there. <laughs> uh, if it's um, an, if it's an NPT motion coming more than three months after the settlement, uh, the claimant also has to show that the compromise is reasonable, uh, the delay is not attributable to fault or neglect, and that the carrier is not prejudiced. So there's a heightened showing of three additional things if the settlement is sought non-proton. Um, so the case settled March 28, 2017, and the NPT motion was not filed, filed until two and a half years later, November 2019. So in that case, it was denied. Um, the court did find that the delay was due to the claimant's fault and or neglect. So I thought that this one was a nice reminder that a 29-5 compromise order is not a slam dunk, particularly when this is being sought more than three months after the settlement. So if you hear, hey, carrier, you need to consent on unfavorable terms or else I'm just going to file an MPT motion, the further we are from the date the claimant signed the settlement release, which they shouldn't have done without your consent anyway, but the further we are from the date they agree in principle to the settlement, the harder and harder it's going to get to get that settlement approved. So I thought this was a neat 29-5 decision. Let's go into Galicia versus uh, Osvar. So this one's from March 30th, 2023. So the claimant, oh, I love this one. The claimant abandoned suit uh, after he would get nothing from a $25,000 settlement. So he had retained a third-party attorney. They sued. The carrier tendered the $25,000 policy limit. Compline was over $100,000 at that point. Um, the attorney's fee was going to be 8333 So the carrier was consented to settlement, but just, you know, getting reimbursed everything after the 8333 attorney's fee. Uh, well, obviously the claimant's not going to accept that, right? So um, the claimant said they were just going to walk away. They abandoned suit, and they, in fact, did abandon suit. So the carrier intervened to protect its lien in this case. So third-party counsel steps in and goes, well, wait a tick. I prosecuted this case until we get the $25,000 settlement. Where's my fee? Um, so he asserted it as a charging lien against the carrier's recovery. Bear in mind the claimant's out of this now. It's workers' comp carrier um, trying to enforce the third-party settlement of $25,000. So the request for the counsel fee was denied in this case. The carrier asserted its statutory lien under 29-1 after intervening and pursuing the claim independently against the defendant. So this is a reinforcement of the concept that there is no attorney fee reduction to our lien reimbursement when the carrier is subrogating, even though the court did not specifically reference uh, Section 29.2 subrogation. If you sue the adverse party directly, there is, if you are not recovering two-thirds of your lien. You are seeking to recover 100%. That one-third reduction that's set forth in 29.1 is our equitable contribution to the claimant's litigation costs. It is not a reduction to any workers' comp recovery whatsoever. Um, so number one, it's a reinforcement of that concept. Number two, um, it's actually quite interesting that this isn't Section 29.2 subrogation. 
This was an intervener um, to protect the carrier Section 29.1 lien rights that ultimately resulted in it being able to settle directly with the third-party defendant and skirt the, uh, the third-party attorney's lien in that instance. So this also reinforces the idea that a threat to abandon the case if we won't compromise is just puffery. Uh, and if they're going to continue to press that argument, you know, saying, hey, carrier, you need to accept a third, a third, a third of $25,000 or else my client's just going to walk away. Uh, okay, good. Then our recovery is now 8,333.33 higher than it otherwise would have been. Both you and your client will end up with absolutely nothing. So it's another way of subrogating, you know, intervening um, under 29.1 instead of serving, you know, a section 29.2 subrogation notice. But it's also very, very powerful leverage, you know. You need to accept a third, a third, a third. Well, no, I don't. If you're going to abandon the case, I'll just get all of it. So uh, that's why I absolutely love this one. Miller versus Services Group, LLC. This one is sounding familiar to you. It's because uh, we have talked about it quite a bit. This was actually a Lois LLC case that we handled for the employer. Very interesting jurisdictional arguments at play. Uh, all the credit in the world to uh, Connor Weatherington in our office who uh, handled the underlying workers' comp case. Addison O'Donnell, who headed up the fourth department appeal and even went there and argued. Um, this was a true collaborative effort, and it was quite a journey. But anyway, um, what happened was there was an agreement in principle for a global settlement. We were going to waive the lien in exchange for Section 32. However, the claimant returned to work, and rightfully so. The carrier said, okay, well, then why am I doing the Section 32? I'm going to withdraw. And we've all seen, um, you know, with the uh, contingent approval notice from the board, you know, before the notice of approval comes out a few days later, you know, everyone has up to 10 days after the approval to withdraw from the settlement for any reason. You could just say, I, I don't like that the clouds are out today. I'm withdrawing. No one's required to go forward with a Section 32. Well, third-party counsel says, no, no, this is an enforceable settlement agreement. I am going to enforce it in the civil court. So the court uh, goes ahead and approves the uh, lien waiver and basically tries to compel a Section 32. And if this is setting off alarm bells in your head, it absolutely should. The civil court has absolutely no authority whatsoever, no jur jurisdiction to approve a Section 32, which lies within the exclusive jurisdiction of the board. Similarly, any party can withdraw from a Section 32 for any reason up until the date it becomes final. So, I, I mean, this was... Uh, quite frankly, I'm not sure why you'd even got this far. Um, I really thought that this was just a very um, obstinate argument. That's not the word I would use, but um, being classy about it. But anyway, um, the fourth department holds that Section 32 is within the board's exclusive jurisdiction, and the civil court has no authority to waive the lien. So uh, that case ended up the way we always thought it was going to and the way it should have under the law. Let's take a peek at Salvia versus Nutritional Frontiers, LLC. Um, this is a slip opinion. It doesn't have, uh, you know, a formally reported decision yet, but this is another decision on the power 29.5. Remember, that's the one for our consent to settlement. So the claimant commenced a third-party action in January 2014. In January 2015, they signed a discharge relieving third-party counsel from further representation. Nobody quite knows why, but uh, they discharged their third-party attorney about a year later. So then they file for comp benefits about a month after that. Uh, in June 2021, the Uninsured Employers Fund raises 29.5 in an RFA. Um, so the board found substantial evidence of settlement without consent, as the court records reflected that the case was settled on, at, 
at least by April 1st, 2015, there was a preliminary conference. And at the preliminary conference, the case was already marked as settled. So at some point prior or on April 1st, 2015, the case was settled. And that was reflected in the court records. When the claimant testified, they couldn't really recall what went down or how it happened specifically. So um, this was basically just based on what the court records themselves reflected. Um, this is why periodic docket searches and monitoring the third-party case are both highly recommended. If you see a discontinuance, even if it's without prejudice, you know, maybe the claimant filed pro se and they're just getting bullied by third-party counsel, third-party defense counsel, uh, and they stipulate to discontinue the case. Or even worse, if you see a stipulation with prejudice that says, this matter has been amicably adjusted and agreed upon between okay, somebody got paid and you, they didn't ask for your consent first. So um, that's a basis to file an RFA for a 29-5 violation. And regardless of what the claimant testifies to, if the court record supports it, um, you're going to prevail if there's substantial evidence that the case was settled without your consent. So uh, this was the year of 29-5 violations, and we're going to see that that bears out in the board trends for 2023 as well. So uh, I absolutely love this one. Um, if you go and you look at the administrative decisions referencing Section 29 um, for the past few months, I mean, the board really went on a heater with this Bissell versus Town of Amherst case to close out the year. Um, but basically, decisions enforcing uh, medical credit pursuant to Bissell, uh, our credit is a valid basis for a CA.1B objection provided it is reserved in the consent. I threw up the citations there for you. It used to be that they would always cite to Matter of Franciscan Health Management, um, the 2015 board decision, uh, in addition to Bissell versus Town of Amherst. But now they've started uh, citing as well. You know how the board always has those standardized blurbs every time they address the same issue. There's that one paragraph that spews out all the law. In case you need to argue this in a brief, they're, they're now citing to um, Black Car Operators Fund decisions from 2021 and 2022. Again, um, the citations are up there for you if you need them. Um, but basically what's, what's really incredible about this, uh, is that if you consent to the third party settlement and you reserve future credit and offset rights and a CA and a medical treatment bill trickles through the door, it raise all other objections, right? If it's otherwise objectionable, you're not going to deduct it from your credit. If it's inconsistent with the treatment guidelines, if it's untimely filed, if they didn't include the reports, if it was unauthorized treatment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, not causally related, Raise all your other objections first. But if no other objection applies, you can still object based on the grounds of the third-party settlement credit. And then um, ultimately, you know, the claimant's going to be found liable to pay and then submit a claim for reimbursement, after which you reimburse them the burns rate of the fee schedule, and then you deduct the gross amount from your credit. But long story short, there are no other grounds to object to a treatment bill but your third-party settlement credit. Yes, it is still objectionable. Uh, also on the topic of credit rights, settlement funding loans. Um, you guys may have seen that on a closing statement before. We always ask for a closing statement when we're consenting to a settlement for this exact reason. If there's money that's like, you know, if you look on the closing statement and it says reimbursement to liquidium funding or, you know, any, you know, settlement funding LLC, that is just an advance on the third party settlement. You do not avoid Section 29 by getting the money from the third-party settlement sooner. I understand you now have to repay that that loan, and I'm sorry for that. It's less money that's going into your pocket today. Maybe you needed it. Maybe it was short-sighted. I don't know. But the simple fact of the matter is you cannot avoid Section 29 
by shifting around how and when you get the money from the third-party settlement. So always get those closing statements, settlement funding loans, big no-no. We still have Section 29 rights on those. Um, this one just keeps popping up, matter of Stenson. Um, carrier and claimant can waive contribution to litigation costs if it's expressly stated in the consent, meaning you can assert a dollar-for-dollar dollar offset moving forward. What does that look like? Um, it can't, you cannot just say carrier reserves dollar-for-dollar dollar credit and offset rights. Uh, it has to be that the claimant is waiving burns and the claimant understands that there shall be no further contribution from the carrier to for its equitable share of litigation costs such that the carrier will have a dollar-for-dollar dollar offset against any benefits, whether medical treatment or indemnity. It has got to be explicit, not just carrier has dollar-for-dollar dollar offset. That does you no good. So that's another case that keeps popping up. Um, carriers entitled to Section 29 rights, even when the amount paid on an MVA case isn't over 50, uh, as long as the indemnity falls outside the definition of first-party benefits, Numerous webinars on this one, if you ever want to check it out, um, the specific topic. I continue to love it because the legislature keeps awarding first-party benefits or saying that it's $2,000 per month, which, as I'm sure if you're monitoring the total disability rate going up year after year after year in front of the board, it's probably setting off a few alarm bells in your head. $500 a week isn't a heck of a lot of money. So until they amend that, any amounts you pay over $500 per week or $2,000 per month, uh, you have Section 29 rights on, whether or not you've paid over 50K, um, as long as you have a third-party settlement credit. So, you know, if uh, you've only paid 25000 to date, but he's already settled his third-party action for $100,000, you don't have to wait until you reach the $50,000 threshold uh, to start taking a credit against indemnity. Say the claimant's getting $900 per week at, a, at the total disability rate. That's $3,600 per month. So the way this works practically is you're liable up front for the full $2,000, right? But then the latter $1,600 is payable at the one-third rate until you use up the credit um, or until you get to the $50,000 threshold. And once you get to the $50,000 threshold, then you have full credit and offset rights, including against medical treatment. This also goes for indemnity paid more than three years after the accident, when does this show up? LWAC classifications in a really low exposure case. Even the minimal LWAC is over four years. I think it's 225 weeks. So um, if you have an LWAC classification in a pretty small exposure case, you are going to get to the three-year mark uh, before you get to 50000 So just something to keep in mind. I'm happy to discuss that topic anytime anyone wants to. Other board trends for 2023, uh, they were very, very, they hyped quite a lot on the two distinct rights we get uh, from Section 29. Section 29.1 is our lien right. Section 29.4 is our credit and offset rights. So saying uh, carrier reserves its Section 29 lien rights against future benefits uh, actually doesn't make a ton of sense. It's, a, you know, Section 29.4 is a credit or offset. Section 29.1 is a lien. A lien is a past obligation uh, you know, a secured debt, basically. So the claimant pays medical out of pocket, submits a claim for reimbursement, gets reimbursed at the burns rate of the fee schedule for the treatment, and our credit, unless otherwise specified, begins at the time of the consent. That's from matter of Williams versus Lloyd Gunther Elevator Service. So the way this works practically with the meds, you specify in your consent letter, claimant agrees that, or claimant acknowledges that claimant is responsible to pay out of pocket 
and periodically submit claims for reimbursement to the carrier. Such claims for reimbursement shall include the treatment records, the invoices, and proof of payment thereof by the claimant, after which the carrier will be liable if the treatment is otherwise compensable to reimburse the claimant at the burns rate of X percent of the fee schedule amount for such treatment. Uh, if it sounds like I've written that out quite a few times, that's absolutely what's happened. So, um, again, if you ever want to talk about the consent language best practices, um, we actually have a webinar coming up on that next year. There's a few of them out there previously, but I'm always happy to talk about it. Um, don't let an ATF deposit happen in an LLEC classification. If there are any third-party settlement issues out there, if it's carrying forward a credit, if it's a case that hasn't settled yet, whatever the case may be, it's, it's grounds to contest an ATF deposit. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, there's been an upswing in 29.5 violations. To be perfectly clear about this, the board uh, will side with us most times if our consent language is explicit and unequivocal. Um, that is the biggest caveat. Our consent has to be clear. But compliance with the terms of the consent and requirement to get our to get valid consent is not optional. Claimant cannot shift around uh, how and when the lien is repaid. Um, the express terms of the consent have to be complied with, uh, and many claimant attorneys are unaware of the remedy if a 29.5 violation is raised. So I threw a citation up there. This is another lowest case, but basically there was almost $500,000 in exposure laying out there. I mean, this guy had some pretty serious injuries, um, and all of the benefits got disallowed over a failure to reimburse $16,000. And believe it or not, um, they, the Third-party counsel, despite signing off on an express consent agreement, later tried to argue, um, I was under the impression that you guys were going to take a credit. Okay, number one, that's not what's in writing. But um, even stranger than that is he tries to cure the issue later on by sending our client a check for $16,000, which they wisely asked, should I cash this? Okay, well, if you've already dispersed the money to your client, where is this $16,000 coming from? Because if it's coming from your trust account, that's a serious ethical problem. You're now commingling client assets, right? Uh, it turned out it was a settlement advance on um, a UIM recovery. Section 29 doesn't apply to UIM. We talked about this in this month's Third Friday's podcast as well, if you're interested. But Section 29 doesn't apply to UIM. UIM. So how is this guy going to cure a failure to reimburse the lien with money that Section 29 doesn't even apply to? And the argument we made to the board was, if you're going to allow him to reimburse the lien from a UIM recovery and say 29.5 wasn't violated as a result, then we have lien rights against that UIM recovery 100%. Forget this $25,000 third-party settlement. I want the million-dollar UIM policy limit for my lien rights. Well, naturally, the board does not want to open up that particular Pandora's box, so uh, the claimant waived all future benefits over a failure to reimburse $16,000. As an aside, um, we borrowed a summary judgment order in that UIM case. Um, it was summary judgment against the UIM carrier on the issue of liability. We were able to use that to establish liability for intercompany loss transfer. So not not only were future benefits disallowed, but we also got back the full 50000 via loss transfer thanks to that UIM case. So um, not quite salt in the wounds, just a nice little addendum. There's only one Section 40 case, boo, uh, in 2023. It's not even published. Uh, Gonzalez versus New Jersey Transit Corp. I put up the Westlaw citation. So uh, this one's just interesting because the judge of compensation uh, properly exercised their discretion. This is what the appellate division says. 
in refusing to approve a Section 20 settlement on grounds uh, that petitioner's live testimony was needed to resolve issues concerning liability for accident and causal relationship. So remember, a Section 20 is not just, you know, parties agree future comp is worth X, therefore we will settle for X. That's how a Section 32 works. Section 20 dismissal order needs to actually be based on disputed issues, such as liability or causal relationship. So in this case, they tried to get the Section 20 approved with uh, just a claimant or a petitioner affidavit. So uh, part of the alleged reasoning for the Section 20 was that the Section 40 credit would have resulted in a $0 OAS. Therefore, order approving settlement, Section 22, PPD, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but therefore, the Section 20 was in the petitioner's best interest because otherwise, thanks to the Section 40 credit, they're not getting any money, right? Uh, and uh, petitioner's counsel argued that during COVID, a petitioner affidavit routinely resulted in an approved Section 20 settlement. So why is it not good enough now? Well, the judge of compensation had questions about what is this Section 40 credit and what are these disputed issues of causal relationship? Is there a prior accident? Um, you know, the injuries from the prior accident has it been sorted out. You know, what injuries are being claimed in this case versus that one, et cetera. So the appellate division says that a Section 40 lien credit impacts uh, the extent of liability, not whether the employer is liable or not. In other words, it may impact how much we have to pay, but it does not create a conflict as to liability sufficient to justify a Section 20. So if you're saying there's a Section 40 credit, therefore I can leverage a Section 20, that is not technically true, other than just the fact that you're entitled to pay benefits at a reduced rate, and therefore the petitioner might want a lump sum dismissal, uh, instead of getting benefits at the one-third rate and medical at the one-third rate. However, you will still need disputed issues if you're going to Section 20 it out. Uh, you can't just rely on the Section 40 credit. The existence of a Section 40 credit on its own will not be sufficient to result in a Section 20, no matter how muddled the numbers may get. So that's it for me. Um, it appears I made a liar out of myself. I think we're at 38 minutes based on this recording. But uh, on the docket for 2024, uh, January, what happens when the employer is sued civilly? That's going to be a fun one. Exclusivity, coverage, intentional wrongs, all those lovely things. February, workers' comp versus PIP in both New York and New Jersey. That's another fun one. March, getting creative with global settlements, lien waivers, litigation costs, and clever consent agreements. I recommend tuning in for that one, especially with all the 29.5 violations we talked about, the requirement to explicitly reserve future credit and offset rights, as we observed in the board trends. You know, this will be a nice one to sort of navigate you through um, how to posture yourself for success on those. Otherwise, um, happy holidays and happy new year, everyone. Let's see if we got any questions before we wrap up. No, doesn't look like we have any questions. All right. As always, thank you so much for tuning in again. Uh, happy holidays. Happy new year. Be safe and uh, enjoy your family, everyone. And I will see you in January 2024. Thanks for tuning in.